Well, let us get into our lesson today. We are in the middle of Why Trust the Bible series, and uh, we had a great this week about uh, the doctrine of inspiration. Today, we're going to be looking at a different topic. We're going to be talking about why trust the Bible when the Bible is full of errors. Of course, that's not what I think, but that's a question that might be posed to you. Why trust the Bible when the Bible is full of errors? How can you believe that book, which is just chock full of all sorts of mistakes? Uh, I warrant that if you have someone who says that to you, it is probably more likely than not that they haven't actually read the Bible for themselves, at least not exhaustively. But that question, so, you know, one thing to say was, well, one thing to say might be, well, would you like to sit down with me and read it? And we can, uh, we could actually have a, a good conversation over the Gospel of John, for instance. But it isn't just people that have never read the Bible that would say this. And in fact, we're going to start out with a testimony from the first, from the guy that was in that video uh, last week, Bart Ehrman, who's a doctor uh, at the University of North Carolina, a doctor of uh, theology at the University of North Carolina and teaches, and who was, in his days of his own education, was a firmly convinced, uh, professing Christian, uh, evangelical, and uh, as he, and as we're going to see, he is has drifted all the way into either agnosticism or light atheism. And a lot of this was based on his perception that the Bible is full of errors. So here's what Bart Ehrman said. So so this is the end of the quote. I'm going to read the whole quote. When I was in seminary, I was taking a class devoted to the interpretation of the Gospel of Mark. At that time, I would have called myself a strong evangelical Christian. At that time, I would have called, uh, yeah, I would call myself a strong evangelical Christian. I thought the Bible had no mistakes. The first time I realized it did was Mark chapter 2. The disciples are walking through a grain field with Jesus, and the Pharisees object to them eating grain because it's the Sabbath. Jesus asks them if they haven't read the passage in Scripture when David went into the temple of God and ate the showbread that wasn't supposed to be eaten. He says it happened when Abiathar was the high priest. Well, from the term paper, I decided to write on on this passage because it contains a famous historical problem. The book of Samuel says that Abiathar was not the high priest at the time. It was his father, Ahimelech. And I wrote a 35-page paper explaining why this can't be a mistake. It was based on an interpretation of the Greek words. The grammar is tricky in that passage. My professor was a very devout Christian who I respected very much. He gave me an A on the paper. But at the end, he wrote, maybe Mark just made a mistake. And so his his professor had put that little seed in there. Maybe Mark just made a mistake. Thank you for your 35 pages on the Greek. Maybe Mark just made a mistake. And then I think this is what's up here. Even though it was a tiny little detail, it exploded the whole thing for me. Once I realized there could be a mistake in the Bible, that there could be a mistake in the Bible, I started finding them all over the place. The first thing it did was make me realize that the Bible is not the inerrant revelation from God. It's a human book with errors. Of course, last week we saw, yes, it definitely is a human book, but because it's also divine. Uh, I stopped being evangelical and became a liberal Christian. 
I eventually became an agnostic. There's no way I would have leaped from fundamentalist to agnostic. It required a lot of transition, and the first thing to go was the inerrancy of the Bible. Right? He, tra- he takes the steps from his, to his deconversion from the beginning of that paper. Maybe Mark just made a mistake. So we see here why the trustworthiness of God's word is so critical. The fact that the Bible, that we believe the Bible is true in all that it affirms is so foundational, not just in defending our faith to unbelievers and to outsiders, but it's fundamental for ourselves. We see in Dr. Ehrman's situation that doubt began to creep in through the idea of undermining the truthfulness of the Bible, and that eventually led him down a road that caused him to abandon Jesus altogether. Ultimately, we get this kind of dilemma. If we can't trust the Bible to say what is true, how can we trust it for anything? And that's the direction he ended up going. And according to him, as he would say now, the Bible is not trustworthy, and therefore Christianity isn't viable because the Bible contains errors. And he's pointing to this very specific case. There's a contradiction in the Bible, he says, Samuel says Ahimelech was the high priest. Mark says Abiathar was the high priest. You know, and some people might say, well, that's such a tiny detail. Well, but it's still getting at the idea of the truthfulness of God's word. So how would you respond to this if someone came to you? And not necessarily that particular test case, but how would you respond if someone were to say, well, the Bible has all these errors in it? Um, number one, I think back to what he, how he challenges his first-year students. Uh, God wrote a book and you haven't read it, meaning, again, I think this drives us back to actually be in our Bibles, uh, but also we need to also think about how can we defend uh, for ourselves and for other people the truthfulness of God's word. Because my goal today would be that you could have an intelligent, apologetic conversation with people you know who are skeptical about the Bible's truth truth claims, or at least begin on that journey. Next slide. Let's look at the different kind of errors that are alleged to be in the Bible. So some people claim that there are scientific errors in the Bible. An example for this would be, the Bible says that the sun rises and sets, but actually the sun stays still and the earth moves on its axis. Right? So there's a scientific error in the Bible. Or the Bible says that God fixed the earth on its foundation, but always the earth is actually always moving. So scientific, scientific errors. Number two, some people say that the Bible is full of historical errors. So here's an example. And we're going to look through all these ones that I'm giving you as test cases. The Bible says Quirinius was governor of Syria when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But Josephus, who's a famous Jewish historian, a contemporary with Jesus, uh, Josephus says Quirinius wasn't even governor until AD 6, uh, several years after Jesus was born. So how can this, how is this not a historical error? Luke made a mistake. And then number three, some people say that the Bible is filled with internal errors or contradictions within itself. And this would be, one example would be this example of, is it Ahimelech who's the high priest or is Abiathar the high priest? Um, Another example would be uh, that there's two different accounts of Judas' death, one in Matthew, one in Acts. So 
According to Matthew, Judas died when he hanged himself. That's what Matthew says. Acts 1.18, Luke records that Judas fell headlong and all his bowels spilled out. Lovely picture. Um, so which is it? Is, is, is that an internal contradiction that you have two uh, different accounts of this death that, uh, that would appear at first glance to be happening in different ways? All right. And again, where's the camel getting his nose under the tent? If the Bible isn't true with respect to its details, then maybe it's not true in other ways. Maybe it's not true that Maybe we don't have to. It's a human book, after all. Maybe I don't have to think that the Red Sea actually parted. Maybe I don't have to think that Jesus fed 5,000 people. Maybe I don't have to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead. That doesn't happen overnight, perhaps, but that's where that's why we want to, to think well about this question of are there errors in the Bible. All right, so here's our dilemma. Next slide. Our dilemma is that Is the Bible inerrant? Does it contain errors? Inerrant obviously just means not without error. Is the Bible errant or inerrant? Next slide. We're going to look at what inerrancy means. What do we we mean when we say that the Bible is inerrant? We're going to see what it means and what it doesn't mean. One of my professors, Rob Plummer, in his excellent book, 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible, he says this. What inerrancy means is that the Bible is completely truthful in all things that the biblical authors assert, whether in geographic, chronological, or theological details. So all that the biblical authors assert is completely truthful. Any questions about that? Let's complement that with Dr. Wayne Grudem's Definition, next there's next in there would be scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now that's interesting. It adds a little wrinkle in there. In the original manuscripts. Now remember, of course, we don't have there's nowhere where we have the letter that Paul wrote to Rome. You know, if, if that letter exists, we don't still, somewhere in the world, we don't know about it. What we have are copies of copies of copies. We're going to talk in a different week about why that doesn't, uh, why we believe those copies to be largely and almost entirely accurate. And yet, we do affirm that we don't have the originals. What we believe to be inspired is what the original authors, what the original authors wrote down. So in the original manuscripts, Scripture does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. So, the doctrine of inerrancy means that when the Bible indicates that something is true, you can trust it. If the Bible is telling you something is true, you can trust it. Next slide. The Bible actually claims this about itself. Right? Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. So, the Bible proclaims that the word of the Lord is flawless. John 10, 35. The scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. So there is this, the the word of God is something, it's like a flawless plate glass window with no cracks in it, according to to its own witness. All right, next slide. Here's what inerrancy doesn't mean. 
because we don't want to hold the Bible to a standard for inerrancy. We're not trying to claim, uh, there's certain things we're not trying to claim. Number one, very important. When we say the Bible's inerrant, we don't mean that the Bible confirms to all our modern conventions of accuracy. Now, what kind of a culture do we live in? How many engineers in the room? There we go. Look, I, I was watching a documentary last night with Elisa. It was about what the, the Hubble telescope and what the, the mirror had to be like on the Hubble telescope and how fine it had to be ground down. And it said something like that it was like the tolerance was 0.06 arc seconds or something. And if you shot a laser beam off the uh, Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., it could hit a dime on the top of the Empire State Building in New York. And that's how accurate the thing had to be. right? We are interested in precision as a culture. We want things exact and perfect in its, in, our, in its accuracy. Now, the reality is the ancient world did not trade in that kind of precision. And we can't judge our... Well, you can't judge them by what we might say are fact-check, you know, or whatever, in terms of... It's the details, of, in terms of some details. For example, for example, in Mark 1, 2 and 3... Mark quotes from Isaiah, he quotes from Exodus, and he quotes from Malachi. And he wraps them up into one quote from Isaiah, Exodus, and Malachi. Here's what he says. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Is that a problem? What do you think? He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes things that are from Isaiah and Exodus and Malachi. Now, in our day and age, you might say that's an incomplete citation, right? You know, your, your, your professor would ding you for a bibliographic error, perhaps. That is not, the, that is not how the people of that day and age considered how to attest to different things. I mean, goodness, the author of the Hebrews says it says somewhere, right? Right? So in a college paper, it might be a citation error, but this is not what would have been considered. This is not a misquoting. This is an acceptable and accurate way to quote original sources at the time. Right? So we're judging them in their historical context, not our historical context. You said it was from Isaiah. This is from Exodus. Well, he starts from Exodus. He starts from Isaiah, moves into Exodus. He doesn't say, and now I'm switching to Exodus. So, BJ, do you do that? When you're quoting multiple, do you, even in your preaching, I sometimes in my preaching, like, for example, I'm going to have, in the song today, we're going to, in the middle of Oh Great God, there's going to be a quote from 1 Peter 1. A quote from 1 Peter 1. Do you know what I did? To make, I did, trust me, go look it up afterwards. I did not adjust the meaning of that at all, but I did move a couple things around, and then it's from 1 Peter chapter 1. You're right? And I'm not giving you, you know, a dot, 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 because it needs to go on the silly slide, right? So, as, so I'm, I'm accurately citing this in my, on my slide, but I'm not doing it the way I would do it in a term paper. Okay, so you, can you understand why that doesn't count as... So that's not what we're saying when we're saying inerrant. Um... The gospel writers aren't even uniform in the way they report the sequence event of events in the life of Jesus. Now, think about modern news reporting. In general, 
We expect, when we look at a historical record, that there's chronological reporting. First we have what happened first, then we have what happened next, then we have what happened next, 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 in, in chronological order. The gospel writers do not tie themselves to that model. And in that day and age and in that context, that's not a problem. So one, one thing you have is that you have some of the gospel writers are arranging things according to certain topics. Luke, we think, might have been the, be, the, the gospel that best explains things in chronological order. He seems to have a, an interest in setting it out in chronological order. Matthew and Mark do not. Mark likes to take two related ideas and put them put a sandwich in the middle, so like an Oreo cookie. You've got one part of a truth, like the disciples aren't getting what Jesus is saying. They're blind to what Jesus is saying. Then he gives the healing of the man who... Uh, who is healed but doesn't see completely. People are like trees walking around. Jesus touches his eyes again, and now he can see clearly. And then afterwards, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. What's happening? The disciples see, but not really. Mark tells a, shows Jesus doing a healing that exemplifies that very thing, and then... And then Jesus, uh, and then Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ because he's seeing more clearly. Now, did those things happen in that chronological order? Not necessarily. Mark is trying to get you to understand a point that Jesus is the one who reveals truth. That's not a failure to be historically accurate. He doesn't make any claims to do that. So often we have material that's arranged topically and not chronologically. Uh, another way that our accuracy is not their accuracy is with numbers. So often they will use round numbers, whether it's the feeding of the 5,000, right? How many people were there? Was it 5,006 or was it 5,000, right? The Bible isn't concerned in its numbers. For instance, can you think about the genealogy in Matthew? How many genealogies are, how many generations are in each part of the genealogy in Matthew? One. Does anyone remember? 14. Is that really how many? We're in between there? No. He leaves some out. What is he trying to do? He's making a theological point. He's not tr- claiming that he's giving an exact number of the generations he's talking. So, so as the gospel writers, they're actually primarily theological writers. That doesn't mean that what they're saying isn't accurate. It means that, they're, that their understanding of how... Uh, they're also composing a literary work and a theological work. And sometimes they make theological points. It's not, it wouldn't have been there in their day and age considered at all inaccurate. It would have been common, the common way to do things. We're judging them by their standards, not by our own. All right. I gotta start moving a little faster. Uh, inerrancy does not mean that the narratives or speeches in the Bible have to be relayed exhaustively, right? So we are all about exact quotes, right? In our day and age, exact quotes. But Matthew and Mark, for instance, include different accounts of the speech in the parable of the tenants. And one streamlines and one doesn't. So one's more probably how it, you know, Jesus, the crowd, Jesus, the crowd. The other one, he just streamlines and just talks about how the whole parable ends up turning out. Mark, Mark only includes Jesus' speech. Uh, Matthew uh, gives the Pharisees responses. It's not an error. It just means that Matthew decided to include some things that Mark didn't. That's okay. It's not an error. 
Uh, let's see. Number three. Yeah, there we go. Math Inerrancy does not mean that the Bible must conform to the language and conventions of modern science. So we'll actually look at one of the examples we looked from the scientific. So Psalm 19.6 clearly describes the sun rising in one horizon, traveling across the sky for the day, setting behind the other horizon. Now, if you were to take a test in astronomy on planetology, and you were asked how the sun moves, and you said, well... It rises in, the, rises in the east and sets in the west. What kind of grade would you get? <laughs> not a very good one. But he's speaking, he's speaking not according to scientific precision, he's talking about what the phenomenological, this is a good word to know, by the way, it, uh, it crops up a lot in theology, phenomenological language, describing things as they appear. And what do we all say when we go outside? The sun hasn't, if we're bleary, the sun hasn't even what yet? Risen. Does that mean we've forgotten all that we learned in our science classes? No, we're talking conventional language. So David is not taking or preparing you to take a science exam. He's describing the sun from his perspective, like we all do. It's just not an error. Uh, number four, inerrancy doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is true. What it, mean, what it means is that when the Bible indicates that something's true, you can trust it to be true. Here's an, there's plenty of things in the Bible that aren't true. Psalm 14.1 says there is no God. How does it precede that? The fool says in his heart there is no God. So the statement, there is no God, is in the Bible. Obviously, inerrancy doesn't mean that that's not true. I, I like the one from Malachi. If he, this is a great way of why you have to take Scripture in its context. Everyone who does evil is good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Context? You people say, everyone who does evil does good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Right? Uh, Satan obviously says, you surely shall not die when he says to Eve to eat the tree. That's not, that's not true. The Bible is not affirming that Satan's statement is true. In the flow of the narrative, it's reporting what Satan said so that we can know what happens. Uh, last one, inerrancy does not exclude metaphorical language. And again, this is something that we should intrinsically understand. When Jesus says, I am the door, not saying he has hinges, right? I mean, we, we use metaphor, they use metaphor. Sometimes things are metaphor. Paul says, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Right? He's actually talking about people. All right, let's look at the essential defense, arguments for inerrancy. That's the next slide. There we go. John, you're doing great. Now that we've established what the doctrine of inerrancy is and what it isn't, the next question is, how do we defend it against the kind of attacks that we've seen so far? When Bart Ehrman comes knocking on our door, how do we preserve in our own minds and for others the inerrancy of Scripture? Um, if your neighbor says, I can't believe in Christianity because the Bible is just full of contradictions. Next slide. An argument from the inspiration of Scripture. That's why we started with inspiration. Inspiration leads us to inerrancy. By logical conclusion. Last week we saw that the Bible is not just a human book. It certainly is a human book, but it's human and divine. This is all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, right? 
All scripture is breathed out by God. The human authors wrote using their own style, in their own historical context, for their own purposes, but as 1 Peter says, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, which means that everything they wrote is exactly what God wanted them to write. So, and we, we looked at why the scripture, you know, we looked at the five witnesses to the, to the inspiration of scripture, but that forms the foundation for our doctrine of inerrancy. If the Bible is truly inspired by God, then it follows that everything that the Bible affirms is true, actually must be true, because, next slide, God does not lie. God does not lie. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Titus 1.2 says, it is impossible for God to lie. God never lies. Or actually, just calls him the unlying God. Yeah, which is a lovely little phrase. Uh, Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. That's where that's from. So, it stands to reason that if God oversaw Scripture such that every word is his word, and it is impossible for him to lie, then everything that is in the Scriptures stands under that banner of the word of God, the unlying God. God does not lie. He never lies. It's impossible for him to lie. Therefore, if he's the author of Scripture, which is what we talked about last week, then it follows that the Bible does not lie It never lies. It's impossible for it to lie because it is the word of the unlying God. Uh, The flip side of that, next slide, this is because God always speaks the truth. Right? Several, Several passages, lovely passages for that. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Has he ever promised and failed to keep his promise. His word is trustworthy. Isaiah forty-five nineteen says, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not seek, say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. His trustworthiness is why we can seek him and know that we will find him. All right, John seventeen seventeen says, Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus says. Your word is truth. So if the Bible is God's word and God never lies and always speaks the truth, then it follows that the Bible never lies and always speaks the truth, which means that everything in it is, in fact, true. That's our biggest defense. If we have an unlying God and the Bible is the word of God, breathed out by God, and both of those things are established in the scripture, then it follows that the Bible is true and what it affirms. All right, next slide. Let's look at an argument against specific challenges. We looked about, we talked about scientific, we talked about historical, and we talked about internal contradictions. Those are the three types of critiques, and we need to have a foundation. Once we have a foundation for the doctrine of inerrancy, we need to respond to the claims, the particular claims that people bring against it. Now, here's my question. Do you need always to know every answer to every possible mistake that someone needs to bring to you in the Bible? Do you need to have an exhaustive understanding of you know, problem texts as a, as a lay Christian? What do you think? I don't, I don't, think, I don't think you do. You do. 
what you do need to do is have a clear understanding, a foundational understanding of the doctrine of the truthfulness of Scripture, and then you need to be able to utilize resources to help in individual situations. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to work through why the, the, the examples we saw before are not examples of errors in the Bible, but of course that doesn't definitively prove that there isn't another one. And I'm not going to go through them all today, <laughs> but I want you to uh, have, the, have a grounding of the certainty of how we go about seeking to confirm that the Bible is without error. We've already dealt with the scientific one mostly. Um, that the, 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 when, when the Bible says that the earth is firmly established and does not and will not be moved, that's not, he's not talking about scientific precision. He's talking about the, the unshakableness of the fact that the earth is, is here to stay. Right or the sun or phenomenological language, the sun rises and the sun sets, which is exactly the same way we talk about it. Um, so I think it was funny that you know I'm using notes. Uh, you know we're, we're greatly blessed from Dr. Richard Lucas, who's a good friend of BJ and I. A lot of these notes are his and his colleague. And you know he says the sun is stationary, the Earth orbits around it and spins on its axis so that it looks like the sun rises and sets. Even that, right? He, used, he was giving the scientific understanding, but even that is less than accurate. Is the sun stationary? No, but the sun is stationary with reference to the Earth. The Milky Way galaxy is stationary with respect to the sun. The, you know, but at, you know, so again, even talking about things more scientifically, we still use things that are not technically precise. So neither does the Bible, and that's not a problem. So by the standards of modern science, you could technically say that the statements of Psalm 19.6 are inaccurate, but that's just not how any of that's working. Um, let's see. I want to make sure that I'm caught up with John. I moved around a little bit. Yeah. So there, that, there's that good, big 25-cent word that's actually good to know. What the Bible authors are doing is using phenomenological language describing nature as it appears from their perspective. There we go. This isn't wrong. We do it all the time. No one considers it erroneous unless you're a really big nerd, like Dr. Spock. So, don't, Mr. Spock, thank you. No, not Dr. Spock. That's a different guy. He's got different problems. <laughs> all right. Next slide. Claim number two. The Bible contains historical errors. Let's look at this example of Luke saying that Quirinius was governor of Syria uh, for the census that Jesus was came to. Now, again, the problem is that Josephus, who's a historian, he's not always reliable, but he's often reliable, he says that Quirinius' governorship took place in A.D. 6. It's generally understood that Jesus was born maybe 4 B.C., uh, just because they got the calendar wrong. Uh, so you know, so what's the, what about this 10-year gap? Is that a problem? Uh, did Luke just not sufficiently brush up on his history when he wrote this down, especially when he's so clear that he's actually trying to do a really well-researched account. It also, actually, there is another problem with it. it. It introduces a problem even in the whole story because if the census wasn't actually when Luke says it was, why would they even be going to Bethlehem, right? The whole point of, the, of them going to Bethlehem is because it's in response to the census. And so if the census didn't actually take place at that time, then you know, that's a problem. There's no reason for them to be in Bethlehem. 
All right, now here's how you approach a situation like this. So Bart Ehrman or, somebody, or your neighbor comes and says, well, your neighbor's probably not going to come to you with the dates of Quirinius's governorship, but a Bart Ehrman might. So how do we then, knowing and believing as we do that the Bible is true, how do we begin to look? Well, we look for several possible explanations for what's going on. Here are some possible explanations to resolve this, quote, historical problem. And there are a number. Let's see if we can... Yeah, there we go. One explanation comes from the grammar of Luke 2.2. So many Greek scholars have argued that the word translated first could also be translated before. So this is the census that took place before the one that happened under Quirinius. So actually talking about two different sentences. The Greek allows for that. Well, that would resolve the tension, wouldn't it? This census is not the one that was taking place under Quirinius. I don't know that I think that's the most likely scenario, but at least it's a plausible it's a plausible situation. You're looking for plausibility. Is this something that could resolve the tension? Uh, another ex- explanation could come from archaeology. So the, the, apparently there's this archaeological artifact called the Trivoli Tombstone, and it contains evidence that Roman governors served multiple terms, not all necessarily consecutive, like Grover Cleveland, who was president at two different times with someone else in the middle. Right? It's possible that Quirinius was governor at the time of Jesus' birth, and then again in AD 6. Right? That's a, a feasible, possible you know, uh, explanation for why this might be. Another explanation it could be that Quirinius wasn't the official governor at the time of Jesus' birth, but he served in some other governing role. So that Luke's description of him as a governor is still accurate. Maybe he was the military governor before he became the civil governor. Rome had all sorts of levels of administration. So maybe he didn't technically serve in the civil governorship, but he had a governing position. Luke calls him a governor. That could be a plausible explanation. Perhaps the best one is the idea of how we all know bureaucracy and politics works. Perhaps the census was begun under another governor earlier, but it was completed under the administration of Quirinius several years later, and he got the credit for it. Now, that's, that is, we do know how that works, right? Let's say under the Jones administration, they start building a bridge. And it takes 10 years. And by the end of the 10 years, who's governor? Not Governor Jones anymore, now it's Governor Smith. Well, it's appropriate, you can talk about that bridge as the bridge that was built in the Smith administration. That's accurate. You can also talk about it as the bridge that was built during the Jones administration. That's accurate too. So if the census stretched, and, one, and at one point Quirinius was governor during that census, then it's appropriate to talk about the census that Jesus... Now, some of you are glazing over, because it's like, how does that... All... Well, what, what, here's not what we're doing. We're not looking to say, we know which of these answers is right. We are looking to say, are there plausible explanations to affirm that what Luke is saying is not false? And yeah, I just gave you four. Four possible things, all of which would not, would, which would substantiate the truthfulness, all of which are very believable. Right? We don't have to know exactly which one was, was the case. We just have to, we're looking for historical plausibility. All right, any questions about that? Either about that particular textbook case or the idea. Okay, next one. So the, oh yeah, next slide. 
Here we go. Uh, yeah, there, there's the principle. Whenever the claim of historical inaccuracy is brought against the Scripture, there will always be plausible explanations that put the claim to rest. We may not know for certain, but we know that there's possible explanations that explain why its truthfulness. There's even examples of historical details from Scripture that for years everyone thought were inaccurate, and then they were later proven correct. I know it's another detail, but in Isaiah 21, 20 verse 1, it mentions the king of Assyria whose name was Sargon. And for centuries, the historical community pointed to Sargon as a great example of the historical ignorance of Scripture because there was no other record of the existence of Sargon as a king of Assyria. And then in 1867, Dr. Henry Rawlinson discovered an ancient inscription. And whose name is on it? King Sargon's name is on it. And that proved his existence, proved from an archaeological standpoint, and supported what the Bible had already claimed. So often, there was, there was I, can, I can remember another one, for many years no one had any, there was no historical record of Ur of the Chaldeans. And people thought that people had just made Abraham's birthplace up, that that was just imaginary or a Babel or something. And then later, as more excavations got done, there was, lo and behold, I can't remember his name, discovers the city of Ur. Right? And now the Bible's substantiated. And that happens all the time. There are things that are discovered every year, that, and they, they substantiate what the Bible says is true. All right, claim number three, the Bible contains internal errors. So that's the alleged contradiction, say, between the Ahimelech and the Abiathar uh, thing, or the Judas. Did he hang himself? Did he fall headlong? Etc. So, uh, next slide. Uh, oh, Yeah, so similar to the alleged historical errors, there are plausible explanations for each of these so-called tensions within the text. Now, actually, blank that out for a second, John. I want to see if any of you might think, if you could think of a plausible explanation for why Jesus would say, if you know the story, if you know the story, why would Jesus say that when Abiathar, you know, when Abiathar was high priest, can you think of can you can you come up with any plausible solution for what, what this particular contradiction? Do you know the stories? If you don't know the stories, it might be a little hard. Okay, well we'll just go with this. We'll just go with this. Again, we're looking for a pl- for plausible explanations. So, in the case of Samuel and Mark, Samuel shows that Ahimelech is the high priest that David goes to and says, "I need help. Uh, please give me some bread." Saul finds out about this, that the high priest helped David and kills the whole family except Abiathar, his son, the the high priest's son. Abiathar is the high priest now, and he goes and he's with David. So now the high priest is no longer under Saul, but the high priest is under David. Well, when Ahimelech was the high priest, Ahimelech was the high priest when David visited the house of God and ate the bread. But who was standing right there also? Abiathar, who was just about to become the high priest when his dad got murdered. So this is during the days of Abiathar, the high priest. He wasn't high priest that instant. But could you now talk about, I mean, we just had an administration change in Britain, right? Now Prince Charles is now what? King Charles III. You know, you could talk about something that happened 10 years ago and say it was in the days of King Charles III. Because he was there, you know, because he was there, you know, waiting to be king. You know, so what he's saying is 
this is during the days of Abiathar, who's the high priest, right? Uh, it would be na- a natural and accepted way of talking for Jesus to place David's visit in the time of Abiathar. Let's talk about the Judas example for a minute. I think the sim- there's a similar way. So how do we resolve uh, uh, this? what some would say is this tension between the two ways that it's said that Judas died? And the, the, the simplest answer is that they're both true. And I don't want to be gross, but when a person hangs himself and now take into account Palestinian heat, not at all impossible to think that somehow the body would have fallen from the tree and the result would be what Acts 1.8 is saying, that it falls headlong and all his entrails spill out. Right? So it's very, very plausible that both of those things are just true and they choose to focus on the different aspects of it. So now on to lunch. So they're not, they're not, compl- they're not contradictory, they're complementary. They work together. Um, again, this shows us that when alleged contradictions in the Bible are brought up, there will always be plausible explanations that put the allegation to rest. Next slide. Yeah, here we go. Alleged contradictions in Scripture will always be shown to be complementary, not contradictory. And that's where we can trust. We believe, we believe in an unlying God who wrote, God's, who wrote his word. So we, can, we trust it, and we don't let... We say, okay... Um, I'm gonna. I have my bedrock trust in the truthfulness of God's word. This situation, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. Let's find plausible situations and plausible explanations, uh, rather than throw out the truthfulness of God's word, which we saw last week has so many evidences of its truthfulness. So, in our conclusion. Uh, The inerrancy of the Bible has been under fire for over 2,000 years, and it has stood the test of time. And every time an assault against the trustworthiness of the Bible is launched, the Bible shows itself to be true. Today we just scratched the surface of all the examples of the ways the Bible proves true against what seems like formidable attacks from the guy of the stature of a Bart Ehrman. So, we can and should trust the Bible as the inerrant word of God. So, next slide. Three steps to take when you come to a tough text or face an attack against inerrancy. Number one, approach the text in trust, not as a skeptic. In all the examples we looked at, you could come to the text with skepticism in your heart and make it look like an error and convince yourself it is an error. But what we've seen today is you don't need to do that. You can trust the Bible if you approach Scripture with a disposition of trust that what God says really is true. There may even be texts of scripture or problems that you can't immediately resolve. That's not necessarily a problem. Trust the Lord with these two. Consider that the reason you don't understand the passage or you can't resolve the problem doesn't have to do with the passage itself. The problem is not with the passage. The problem is with your incomplete understanding. And you can grow in your understanding and your wisdom and your knowledge before you can understand this text more accurately. My kids and I did that last night, actually. We were reading a, a tricky text at the end of, of 1 Samuel, and it looks like David's doing some really weird stuff. And I was like, and Isaiah was like, how does this work? How does this work? It looks like David's about to go fight the Israelites. Like, how's that going to work? Well, then, so I was like, okay, you go to bed. I'm going to do a little research. And I go on, and I see, and I, and I look at the ESV study notes. And oh my goodness, were they helpful. Because I hadn't seen some of the things that were going on in the Hebrew. 
and I hadn't seen some of the things that were going on and the ambiguity of what David was saying. And suddenly, it, not only did it make sense, but it actually was really cool. Like David is saying, you know, like the, the, the Philistine king that David is serving at the moment says, you're going to be my bodyguard. And I look at the notes and it says, he's saying, you're going to be the keeper of my head. A Philistine is saying to David, you're going to be the keeper of my head. Any, any bells ringing when you think of the man who killed Goliath, right? So I didn't, I didn't have a complete understanding. Others who have studied it more had a better understanding. They helped me. So that's how you can come to a text if you're not understanding or you think you're, it's tricky. And number two, you can pray. When you're faced with a difficult text and it's, nig- and it's niggling at you and you don't know how to resolve it, ask the Lord for help because you have the spirit of truth indwelling you and he will help you over time and illumine God's word so that you can understand it and apply it rightly. And the third one, which I think is just, it's, it's always apropos in so many ways, seek counsel. If there isn't a passage, if there's a passage of scripture that you don't really get, come talk to BJ. If he's not in, come talk to me. No. We would love nothing more than to get coffee, dig into the scriptures with you, uh, if we don't have an immediate answer, we'll, do, we'll help you do research. We'll do the research. Uh, we love to help you understand the Bible. Uh, so seek counsel. Don't say, wow, I'm really struggling. Now I'm wondering whether or not the Bible's true. No. Look at the community of God's people over the course of time and over the course of the world, and there's lots of people. There's nothing new under the sun. These things have been looked. There's even books, whole books. BJ, do you have that book? The book of... Answers to tough, yeah. answers to tough um, problems and yeah, editors like Geisler, yeah, yeah, so good, good All right, any final questions before we go? Yeah, son. Gosh, I'll talk to you See, now, now that was an inaccurate. The Bible's not inaccurate because God is not superintending everything I say. The Bible is accurate. God did superintend everything. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for our trustworthy word from you. We thank you that you are the unlying God. And we thank you that you tell us that Jesus is the Savior. And you tell us that everyone who seeks you will find you if we search for you with all our hearts. And we bank on that promise. And we live our lives on that. And it keeps us till the last day. So help us, Lord, uh, as we seek to understand your word better and better and to be able to... Uh, help our neighbors come to see its glory and truthfulness and beauty and uh, that they might come to know Christ as well. In Jesus' name, amen.